start by thanking you again for your faithfulness in being here. Um, it should go without saying, but in this day and age, it doesn't go without saying that when the primary teaching pastor or elder at a church is missing, then the people often disappear and find it a convenient reason not to be at worship. So whether you're here because you didn't realize Adam was going to be gone or you're here today out of your loving faithfulness for our Creator and you're willing to worship regardless, I'm grateful for your being here. Um, I also, we should consider how uh, fortunate we are to have the musicians we do and um, be sure to, uh, to mention to them uh, how grateful we are for them stepping in at Carrie's absence too. And, you know, we hardly missed a beat. My goodness, uh, we are truly blessed with the people that God has sent to this church. And so uh, I'm grateful to them and um, hope you will be too. Um, I'm going to continue a series. It's kind of hard to call it a series because there's so many gaps between one sermon and the next. But uh, three sermons ago, I started a series in the book of Mark where we talked about Mark and who he was and how he was, write, he was writing Um, somewhat under the guidance of Peter. We don't know exactly how closely if this was Peter's gospel written at Mark's pen or if it was more like Mark's gospel that he got from Peter and then Peter approved of. But church tradition does teach us that that Peter was aware of at some point, either before or after, and also in agreement with this gospel. Um, Mark, of course, was the one that Paul had thrown away. And so our first message from this series was don't throw that away. It was talking about how God, Paul may have been finished with John Mark, but God was not. And so God used him to write a new genre, something that had never been written before, a gospel. Mark's was the first gospel, the earliest gospel in our scriptures. And even though it comes after Matthew, it was written before Matthew, Luke, or John. Um, next, we talked about um, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, and we saw him proclaim that here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we saw God's endorsement of that after the baptism of Jesus where God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see Jesus go out into the wilderness to be tempted. And not a whole lot of detail is given to us there in the book of Mark, but Jesus goes out to be tempted of the devil 40 days. We learn in other Gospels that he was out there without food and that Only after the temptation, angels finally came and ministered to him. But again, he showed his authority over Satan and over temptation after having been anointed at the baptism as the Son of God. The next thing we see is Jesus' ministry begin. He comes before his crucifixion, before his death, burial, or resurrection. And we confronted the scoffers who said, what in the world is he teaching if he's teaching the gospel? What is the gospel? And we dealt with that concept of what the gospel is that involves far more than Jesus' life, uh, excuse me, his death, burial, and resurrection. It also includes his life, his kingdom, uh, the will of God, the scriptures. All of these things dovetail to what Jesus was proclaiming. And basically, it came down to believe, repent, and believe, forsake your sins, And believe me, believe what I'm telling you. Believe it not just on the surface, but believe it at a core level so that you'll follow and do what I say. Obedience is the evidence of belief. And so today we pick it up after that. You've already heard the passage read, Mark 1, 16 through 34. Scribal error there in your bulletins, not 39. I don't know who did that. But anyway, 
I got to thinking about this next section where Jesus calls his disciples and how as he went along Galilee, and I wondered why in the world perhaps most people would wonder if they really put any thought into it, why in the world he would start his call in Galilee. Of course, we have the passage that we read responsively from Isaiah 9 that told us that he would do that. It was some level of indication that he would. But to start where there were very few theologians, and we'll see that in the passage, to start with blue-collar guys, you know, guys who may or may not have known the Old Testament scriptures very well. Who knows what kind of teaching they got there, whether their parents taught them deeply or not. We'll see. We've already heard read that they were not taught very well in the synagogue. And so for Jesus to start his ministry and his calling there in Galilee is a little puzzling if we don't understand the mind of God better in the matter. It got me thinking about the NFL draft and with the NFL draft here in Kansas City, I was intrigued by it. I watched as much of it as I could. It was, it was very interesting to me to see how teams chose. But there were all these shows around, uh, the, surrounding the NFL draft on ESPN and other channels that talked about uh, the, uh, the, the draft busts over the year, the biggest draft busts. And I thought, my goodness, anybody standing around watching Jesus pick his disciples would say, this guy is going nowhere because he's picking a bunch of draft busts. As he's drafting these guys, none of them have, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors. They're, they're various things that just do not sit well in proclaiming the gospel of God. It doesn't make any sense. You needed a running back and you drafted a cornerback. That's not gonna help you on offense. But we see that Jesus does go to Galilee. And in spite of what we might think, if we took the time to invest in it, and he, he goes alongside the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, that's probably quite an overstatement in its name. It's also known as Lake Kinneret, Lake Gennesaret, or Lake Tiberias, named after its largest city that's on its coastline. Um, it's only 13 miles long, north to south, and eight miles wide, east to west, at its widest point. It's the largest and lowest, excuse me, it's the largest freshwater lake on earth, and the lowest, excuse me, it's not the largest freshwater lake. It is the lowest in terms of sea level freshwater lake on earth, and it's the second lowest in terms of sea level lake of any kind after the Dead Sea, which is lower yet again. Um, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Tiberias, uh, was also known for its fish, it had a, not just an abundance of fish, but an abundance of many, many kinds of fish. Fish was the primary meat of the people in that day. It wasn't lamb. It wasn't uh, beef. It was fish. And fish was the primary thing that people ate because of its abundance, because it was cheap, because it was easy to get. And so even with the young man who gave his fish to Jesus, gave five loaves and two fish, not five loaves and two hamburger patties. And so that we see that fish was their primary meat in that day. And these fish were exported all over the Mediterranean. They were big, that was big business. Because the Sea of Galilee had so many various kinds of fish and so many delicacies of fish, they were exported everywhere. The kinds of fish you could get nowhere else in the world. 
But as Jesus comes along the Sea of Galilee, I want us to stop and look at two words. He saw. He saw, it tells us, Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Jesus, we begin to see as the gospel unfolds, is good at seeing the invisible people. Jesus stopped and took note of the blue-collar workers that were just really part of the background. These guys were just part of the backdrop. They were part of the horizon, easily missed, easily overlooked. But Jesus in his ministry took note of lepers, of the blind, of the dumb, of the deaf, of children, of women who were not thought of highly in this culture, but more like property, of Samaritans that were despised by the Jews, even of short people like myself when Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree to see him. He took note of Zacchaeus and said, come down here, I'm going to go eat at your house tonight. We're going to fellowship a little bit. But Jesus saw and he called these fishermen that were just part of the background and he tells them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they did that. They came down, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he does the same thing. He sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're mending their nets. Why were they mending their nets? Because they didn't want the fish to escape. So when you're not fishing, you're mending your nets. And that's what they were doing. And he calls them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. But the question that immediately comes to my mind is why they would be interested in being fishers of men. And I think the answer is found in some of the things that Mark doesn't record for us that we find in other Gospels. We'll explore that a little bit today. At this point, they're perhaps disciples. We could probably fairly call them disciples, but not yet apostles. So an apostle is a sent out one. Right now, they've been called in ones. So they're disciples, but they're not yet apostles, those who were called but not yet sent. And their response to Jesus, even though we can't tell from the book of Mark, is not spontaneous. It had to be calculated. See, these men, they were, were probably looking at Mark as Mark having skipped most of the first year in Jesus' ministry. In his three and a half years, on earth, uh, in his ministry, excuse me, in his earthly ministry, he probably spent that first year in Judea largely. But even at that, it seems like that the ministry in Galilee was a jumping off point for Peter. He probably had been with Jesus in other places, and we'll look at that. But this wasn't their first day they encountered Jesus. They weren't out running their businesses, and Jesus says, hey, stop fishing for fish and come fish for men. And they're like, okay, never seen this guy before, but I'm going. Um, They had each heard of Jesus. They probably had heard Jesus teach, probably many times. Some, maybe all four, had been disciples of John the Baptist and had heard him uh, declare that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. So they had some background with Jesus. It wasn't just that Jesus went to Galilee and said, come on, guys, and they just dropped it and went. But they had put themselves in a position of service to God by following John, John the Baptist, that is, and then being called by the Christ himself. So even before Jesus came to Galilee and called them, they had had some experience with John the Baptist, seen the baptisms, perhaps had been baptized themselves. They had walked in Judea themselves down in the southern part of the country. Just for sake of the geography, if you 
if you're not familiar with it, the Sea of Galilee is in the northern section of Israel. And then uh, the, uh, trying to get my directions right here, uh, on, on the west, from your perspective, I think that's right. On the west, we have Capernaum, and I think Tiberias may be over there. But this is where Jesus is at this time. And so these fishermen fish this body of water. You have the, the, the River Jordan that flows south, and then you've got the Dead Sea down below. And this is where a lot of his first year's ministry took place. But Jesus had spent much of his time in Judea around Jerusalem, this down the southerly point where these men were apparently present. Uh, much of what John records in his gospel apparently preceded what we're seeing here in Mark, and certainly the wedding at Cana did, as John tells us that that was Jesus' first miracle. And at that time, Jesus told his mother that his time had not yet come. Probably before Jesus called the, the disciples here at the Sea of Galilee, he had experienced the cleansing of the temple, a clandestine meeting with Nicodemus, and a scandalous public meeting with a Samaritan woman, in which case many of his disciples were present there. The four Gospels record events in differing order, and we need not be disturbed by that. It's not immediately clear whether any of the Gospels is, is strictly chronological or not. Luke records Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law that we read about prior to his calling as a disciple. But it's important to realize that other cultures, and this Eastern culture especially, did not and do not today think linearly like we do in the West. Many times a culture will think circularly. And I can't wrap my head around this completely, but a book that I was referred to and enjoyed very much called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes exposed this to me. We in the West, we think, well, a story has a starting point and an ending point, and you just tell things chronologically, but not everybody does that. Not every culture does that. And so what we see in the Gospels is that a lot of times that certain events are recorded, but not with a point of starting and ending, just things jumbled in there, and that culture understands it very well. I would commend that book to you, by the way, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. But even today, some cultures speak in a circular fashion so that the timeline is hard for us in the West to follow. We think you get up, you go to bed, events happen along the way, and that's not the way every culture thinks of it. A lot of cultures think reasonably, maybe I shouldn't do that today because if I don't do it today, tomorrow I may not have to at all. Um, the West thinks, let's get things done. We have a task list and we go through it. We think linearly as well. But Luke adds some very juicy details that Peter and Mark omit in this gospel, Luke tells us that on this calling, there was a crowd pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets and getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus sees this boat, and what Mark doesn't record for us here, Luke fills in the gaps, and he says, the people are pushing me into the water, man. Can I get on your boat? You push me out. I'll sit down. I'll teach the people. They'll get what I'm hearing. They'll hear everything I'm saying all across the landscape. And of course, it would have been a space where the land went up because water goes down, and so it's in the lower spot where Jesus is sitting, and the people are in something of an amphitheater. So now he can, he can teach the thousands of people who can hear him because of that amphitheater effect. You may recall some of you, before we got too many things up here on the stage, 
when we first built this building because of this curved back wall, you could talk over here and somebody could hear what you're saying over there just by talking, just the reverb. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was using the contour of the land to teach the people. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. And so we see the same story with added details. Notice the difference, though, between Peter's reaction and the 5,000 that we alluded to earlier that Jesus had fed. You see, Peter didn't look at the scenario and the catch and say, I've got a great idea for a new partnership. You know, we're partners with James and John, and they're fine, but they can't do that. Lord, why don't we get together and we'll expand our business? Where the 5,000, Jesus feeds the 5,000, where he takes five loaves and two fishes, and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And instead of saying, what Peter did, depart from me. We're sinful people, O Lord. We, we don't deserve your presence. Jesus leaves and goes across Gal the Sea of Galilee that evening. And what do they do? They wake up. They can't find him. They're like, we've got to get something to eat. Let's go find Jesus. And so they trollop around the Sea of Galilee until they catch up with him. And they have an argument with him. They want to tell him about how Moses gave a sign by feeding the people in the wilderness. You should probably do that too, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them. They twisted scripture to manipulate him. But Peter, <clears throat> seeing Jesus for who he was and himself for who he was, expressed horror at the contrast. Same with the publican and the Pharisee. You know the story, the publican goes up to pray and he brags and tells God about how good he is and how fortunate God is to have such a great Christian as he is. And the publican won't even lift his eyes up. He's so distraught and disturbed with who he is, he beats his chest and he says, God, just be merciful. Just be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is what we see with Peter. Just be merciful to me, a sinner. We have both of these groups in our culture today. We have <clears throat> those who are concerned about their condition and want to do the right thing, and we have those who just live for a handout. Uh, you may see them in the median at a, a stoplight um, after they finish their day gathering their dollars and climb into their Lexus and drive home to their four-bedroom air-conditioned home where they can get on their Netflix and use their iPhones and collect their welfare check. And then we have those in genuine need who would be willing to take a job if somebody actually offered it to them. And occasionally you will hear a story about that on the news. I wish we heard that more often. 
And there's a third group of people, just like in the first century, there are those false Christs who are willing to take advantage of the first type, telling them how they can deliver everything they've ever wanted. They'll give them another nickel in their welfare check if they'll just give them their vote. And so we have a culture of covetousness in our politics. Our body politic is overwhelmed by the drive of covetousness. Give me more of somebody else's things, and I will vote for you. Scripture is clear how to handle both of these situations. Jesus taught us to be generous. He encouraged his disciples to give their alms secretly, not to make a big show of it, but to give alms. Jesus, of course, was generous, and he fed the 5,000 the first meal. But when they came back for seconds, he pointed out their freeloading ways. He said, no, that's not what this is all about. And then Paul told us that if a person is not willing to work, that they just should go hungry. If we ever want to get serious about the welfare issues we have in our country, we have the pattern right here in Scripture. Not only was the disciples' decision a calculated one, these were most likely upper-middle or upper-class fishermen. So they would have certainly understood something of what they were walking away from and what they were giving up. Um, The fish export business, as I mentioned, was a big business. In fact, Josephus in AD 68 had commandeered 230 ships on the Sea of Galilee for the War of Galilee. And so with 230 ships out there and probably more that he didn't commandeer, you can imagine it was a big, thriving business for a lot of people. John himself, it says, the scriptures tell us, was known by the high priest, indicating some sort of prominence of family or position. Perhaps it had something to do with his fishing export business. Surely they would have taken some of their fish and gone south to Jerusalem, and John's catch may have been known to the high priest, or it may have simply been a family relationship. We don't know. But John was no small fish himself in that circle. Um, Archaeological excavation seemed to indicate that Peter's home was right next to the synagogue in this day and was very large and very expensive. Uh, Excavations have shown that it was used for church gatherings. There's uh, much church graffiti, religious graffiti on the walls of that first century building. So these men were most likely well off in their social setting, um, although maybe not so much respected by the religious crowd, They would have been respectable businessmen, we would think of them. What's more is even though Acts tells us they were not educated men per se, they were likely somewhat shrewd businessmen. You think about what they would have to do to be able to have a thriving business like that. We might call them street smart. But to run a lucrative fishing business with all the exports that went from the Sea of Galilee, that sort of business likely necessitated that they they spoke Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic to be able to communicate with others who were able to ship their fish further around the Mediterranean. They were, despite all of this, they were honest about themselves. And I think even though we can't tell from looking strictly at Mark, they had time to consider what they were walking away from. So unlike today's false apostles and health and wealth preachers, they were willing to walk away from lucrative livelihoods. And the whole point was what they were giving up was not nearly as valuable as what they were gaining. They wanted to follow the one who was mightier than John the Baptist, who had nowhere to lay his head, but had the words of life. And so we see here, if you're taking any notes, the first point today is 
effectual calling does that. Effectual calling is the first thing we see in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He calls them, and his effectual calling, we might say irresistible grace in some contexts, was compelling. It's really interesting that there's, we have no records that I know of of any Jewish rabbi besides Jesus who recruited their students. In fact, Jewish rabbis took applications. Instead, the students tried and tried to get into the rabbinical schools that they followed. They applied. They had to demonstrate their qualifications and their worthiness of the rabbi's efforts. But Jesus did it the opposite. He looked out, and he made his NFL draft picks out of people that nobody would have wanted. And he reminded them that he did the recruiting. In John 15, 16, he tells the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus had gone out and recruited, and his Galilean ministry begins with his effectual calling. And it's significant, we should not overlook the fact that Jesus sovereignly chose men to give the gospel. See, if I were Jesus, I would probably try to wow the crowds by using angels, doing a bunch of angelic hocus-pocus the way that they can do, the acts of God that that would impress men. But I probably wouldn't have chosen men to redeem men, to carry that gospel message. But it's... It's unique and unusual, I think, that Jesus sovereignly chose men to spread the gospel. And so all of us in the church of Jesus Christ have the privilege of participating with God's effectual calling by giving the gospel of God to any who will hear it. And it's not our job to save. It's not our job to sell. It's our job to tell. We tell... And the Christ, the God of all the earth, who does the effectual calling, opens the ears of the deaf whom he sees fit. He opens the eyes of the blind whom he sees fit. But he does not in any way lay on your shoulders to convert, only to tell. And so you do the advertising, and he'll do the redeeming. These guys were the same. They were his Isaiah Pachinkos and his Brock Purdy's. For any of you NFL fans, you probably know those names. Isaiah Pacheco was a seventh-round draft pick for the Chiefs. He started beginning at Game 7 this past year, and he ran all over the NFL, and he scored in the, in the Super Bowl. What a great running back that guy is going to be. Brock Purdy, anybody know who he was? He quarterbacked the 49ers at the end of the season. He was dubbed Mr. Irrelevant. The last guy taken in every draft is given a jersey that says Mr. Irrelevant across the back. That was that guy, and he was tearing up the NFL at the end of the season. That's who these guys are. Nobody would look at Brock Purdy or Isaiah Pacheco and think anything of them, a seventh rounder, and Mr. Irrelevant. Jesus looks at these fishermen, and he says, I want you and you and you, you guys come follow me, and they do. His effectual calling. He knew what he was doing. But in Jesus' Galilean ministry, not only did he employ his effectual calling, but also his authoritative teaching and exorcism. After this calling, they go into Capernaum, 
a large city on the Sea of Galilee. It was probably the home of Peter and Andrew and perhaps even James and John. We're not sure about that, but Capernaum seems like the likely home of almost certain home of Peter and Andrew. And whatever day it was they went, when the Sabbath day came, they went into the synagogue and Jesus was teaching. And when he started teaching, something strange happened. The people were astonished. Now, this synagogue that he went into, we should take note that it was not built by or initiated, I should say, by Jews. The the stones may have been stacked, but it was actually built by a Roman centurion. Remember the story in Matthew 8 and Luke 7 about a, a Roman centurion who sends people to Jesus to say, please come and heal my servant. He's a sick servant. And they come, and along the way, he sends other people, and, and he says, look, Lord, I, I'm, a, I'm a man under authority, and I know how to give commands and tell one to come and go, and they do. I'm unworthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I know this. And Jesus marveled. And he, and he talked about this Roman centurion who, would not, who, who showed greater faith than the children of Israel. And he pointed him out. Well, that centurion is the one who, Scripture tells us, had built the, uh, the synagogue in Capernaum. And he said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word. So that's where they were. And the people were astonished at the teaching that Jesus gave because he spoke with authority. So, of course, when he saw the multitudes, he thought of them as sheep without a shepherd because the the scribes, the teachers of that day, were not teaching with any authority. They had no vision. The Scriptures tell us where there's no vision, where there's no Scripture, there's no Word of God, the people perish. Well, these guys, these scribes and other teachers would go on about the length of tassels, the prayer tassels. Um, the prayer shawls, bragging about tithing of mint and anise and cumin, uh, the distance you could travel on a Sabbath day without sinning and it being work. They would, they would speculate about all of these things. The synagogue in this day, in many ways, had become little more than a think tank. You know, they had these political think tanks where people get together and they strategize and they, they discuss and they argue, and that's about what this had become. And one guy would say, well, I think the tassels on the prayer shawl should come to here. And another guy would, no, I think they should be much lower. And, and another guy says, well, I think we shouldn't walk so far on a Sabbath day. And, and another guy says, no, we're, our current Sabbath day journeys are just fine. We don't have to. But all of these things were added in extra. And that's what the people were used to hearing, but their religion kept them coming. Week in and week out, much like religions today where you can go and sit and hear a man speak Latin for an hour that you don't understand one word of, but you go and sit and your religion keeps you going back. Your religion kept, their religion kept them coming back week in and week out, but they never heard anybody speak with authority. Paul writes in Romans 3, what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision? Much in any way, to begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. But their teachers were apparently not teaching the oracles of God. So when Jesus comes along speaking with authority, they are astonished. It's a strong word. They're disturbed. They're bothered. They're taken back. 
And it's at this time that a man with an unclean spirit begins to speak. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We see this confrontation begin right here when finally an authoritative verse stands in the pulpit. The man with an unclean spirit recognized him. The demonic world was spiraling in panic to think that Jesus had moved up the time of their judgment. Have you come to destroy us? He demands. I know who you are. Jesus of Nazareth, you're the Holy One of God. I don't know how this would have come out. I don't know if it was the man's normal voice or if it was something like you might see in some silly movie where the face and the body is contorted and he has something of a growl or just what. But he does declare, however it comes out. I mean, it's been some time since I had teenagers in my home, so I don't really remember what this may have looked like. But how often had he been there? How often had this man been at the the synagogue on the Sabbath? How many prayer shawl lessons had he heard? How many Sabbath day journey messages has he heard? Did the people even know he was possessed before this day? Or was he just some old crank that people just thought was peculiar? See, the demon knew the son even before he had rebelled against God. He had stood in the presence of God before being cast out of heaven And Jesus silences the demon and emancipates the man. This is nothing like with the way Hollywood have us think that this goes down. There was no strain, no debate about the matter. Jesus didn't sprinkle water or chant a bunch of Latin phrases. He just said, shut up and get out. And he did. And like a teenager with with a huff, throwing their skirt down because that's not the one they want to wear to church tonight. He threw the man down and he cleaned out. Notice, too, that the Scripture says three times, verses 23, 25, and 27, three times an unclean spirit, an unclean spirit, an unclean spirit. And so when the Holy One of God walks in, there is going to be conflict. Perhaps they had been sitting with this man with an unclean spirit week in and week out for years and didn't even know it until the Holy One of God arrived. And they were further astonished, terrified, and alarmed by what he did. It would do us good in our day to be astonished at Jesus' teaching and authority. I ask myself when I ask you, when was the last time you were astonished at Jesus' teaching when you sat and read your Bible in the morning? Do we see teaching about prayer shawls and Sabbath day journeys when we read the Scripture? Or do we genuinely see teaching with authority that changes us? So Jesus was not only... Not only did He come as an effectual caller, not only did He come as an authoritative teacher... But he also came as a compassionate healer. So as the story continues, immediately they left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon. So it was close by, which I'm sure lends some credibility to the archaeologist finding that the, the house belonged to Simon, was next door to uh, this synagogue. 
And interestingly enough, now I know this can't quite be right because it says Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Surely that's a scribal error uh, because the first pope, it would seem that would be very embarrassing that the first pope would have a mother-in-law without having a wife. Um, That just doesn't seem to make sense. But to the embarrassment of Rome, the first so-called pope did actually have a wife. Uh, And I have to say that I am very glad to live in the tradition of the first pope. Um, He did not go without a wife. But she lay ill with a fever, and he went in and raised her up. Now, Paul indicates that that, um, Peter's wife traveled with him, as did the wives of the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in 1 Corinthians 9. So all of these men, not just Peter, traveled with their wives, let along their wives, and Clement of Alexandria and Eusebia, the early church fathers, Eusebius, I should say, um, recorded something very interesting about Peter's wife. Apparently, she was a faithful follower of Christ herself. She was martyred just before Peter, apparently in his presence, and his last words to her were recorded as, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. There's nothing he could do at that point. She was being faithful. He was being faithful. He understood the calling. How many of us today could say to our spouse if they were being led to be martyred, remember the Lord, not renounce your faith? How easy it would be to try to justify, renounce your faith, you don't really mean it. There's no need for you to be killed. Peter says, remember the Lord, honey. Remember the Lord. I'll be with you in a minute. Now, we're not told whether or not the people knew to ask Jesus to heal Peter's mother-in-law or not, but in any case, they tell him about her. And he, on his own initiative, in one way or another, goes in, and when he touches her, the fever leaves her. Whatever infection she had was just gone. I mean, today we take antibiotics. Sometimes I, I begin to wonder to myself, not that we need to, take on some sort of a Christian science mentality, but how often does our culture think medicine first, prayer somewhere down the line? In this culture, Jesus was the cure. There were no antibiotics. Whatever he did, he sent the infection just like the demon, get out. And the infection was gone and she arose and served. And I congregation of people this size, even as modest as we may be, there may be those who bristle at that thought. It makes me sad to think of that, but in this culture, it's a world away from the one I grew up in. I'm sure there may be negative reactions to the notion that she arose from sickness and served them. There might be complaining that, well, of course, they treated women like cattle. They were just something to be owned. But it does seem that at this time and in this culture, there was still some value placed on service, service even by servants. There was some understanding of the value that they brought, not a bristling at not being the head. But we need to reject the culture, this culture and the world that's taught us that service is bad, especially if it's by a woman or a minority. Jesus' words were, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He throws himself right in the forefront of this bucket. He doesn't say, you all need to serve me. He says, you all have to serve one another. I came to serve. Romans 12.10 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. And so Peter's mother-in-law, healed by our Creator, rises to serve. And it's interesting that the passage goes on to say, after that, that evening at sundown. Any thoughts about why the people would wait all the way till sundown to bring their sick and their demon-possessed? So ingrained was the teaching about what constituted work on the Sabbath that they waited until evening when the Sabbath ended. And so at sundown, Sabbath is over. Now we can take Grandma to go get healed. Thank goodness she didn't die between lunch and now. Thank goodness this demon-possessed knucklehead living in my back room didn't run off and drown himself in the Sea of Galilee. Now we can take him to see Jesus because we can go more than a Sabbath day's journey. The sun is down. And they brought him the sick and the possessed. Who knows whether the possessed resisted, knowing what was coming. The bottom line was he healed. He cast out devils. He did not permit them to speak. And it turns out that the whole city was at the door probably took hours of selflessness to heal them all. He probably sat and spoke to each one. I doubt that Jesus would have treated it like a conveyor belt, probably not just stamping out widgets. Okay, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're cast out, you're healed, you're cast out. I suspect that Jesus talked to each one. Remember how we talked about how he was good at seeing the invisible ones. He was good at seeing the people caught in the backdrop. You look around and you'll see it's true that there's not many wise, not many noble. We're considered fools in all the earth to believe in him. We're the fools he cared about. But why? Why did he effectually call? He effectually called so that we might hear the gospel from those whom he called. He called the disciples... And they entrusted what they knew, what he taught them to other faithful men who taught others also. And it went down from generation to generation to generation to generation until it came to you. So why did he effectually call? So that you might hear. Why did he teach authoritatively? So that we might understand and not be as those who heard his parables. Because he specifically said that he spoke to some in parables so that they wouldn't understand. If you're here today in the body of Christ, it's because he allowed you to understand. He taught authoritatively so that we could understand. And why did he heal compassionately? So that we might see the miracles and believe. He told some, look, if you don't believe me for the sake of the words that I speak, believe me for the sake of the miracles. So he taught, he called effectually so that we might hear. He taught authoritatively so that we might understand. And he healed compassionately so that we might believe. At the end of it all is L-O-V-E, his love. One of these men that he called that day, many years later would write, we love because he first loved us. John 3.16 
my dad's favorite passage when I was growing up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus comes with effectual calling, authoritative teaching, and with passionate, compassionate healing. Let's go to him that are praise in our prayers. Father, we do come to you, the Son and the Spirit, proclaiming your gospel, hoping that your people have been fed appropriately. Lord, we ask that you would bless it. Whatever shortcomings there may have been in today's message, I pray that you'll root them out, that we'll meditate on the Son's ministry, the fact that he does love us enough to call us, to teach us, to grant us belief. Lord, may your people today be blessed here and around the world by the truth of the gospel. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus.